Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of the most important decade in the history of the human species and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it all. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? I, I don't remember wanting to be anything. Uh, I didn't have any particular aspiration when I was growing up. Oh. So no particular, I mean, were there any particular subjects that you fancied or things that, like, did you want to do what your parents wanted to do or was it just not anything that you thought about until you went into the workforce? I, I, I didn't think about it until we had uh, the careers officer come to the school mm. and basically in those days, the career officer kind of told you what you might do. So he said, you know, you might be an office worker or something. That's what you might do. And it's, it's ended up what I, what I have been doing. So he was kind of right. He was depressingly right. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Series 3, Episode 7, and my guest, Paul Thomas. This is another Zoom interview recorded on my phone on the 24th of March, 2022. Evening, comrades. Paul Thomas is a civil servant and qualified FE teacher and has lived and worked in Leeds for over 30 years. Outside of his day job, Paul has been involved with the debating group Debating Matters for several years, judging and chairing at all levels throughout the UK, as well as for Debating Matters India, Debating Matters Israel and Debating Matters Berlin. Paul is the co-founder and organiser of the Leeds Salon Public Discussion Forum and the co-founder of Leeds Free Speech Meetup. You can find the links for Debating Matters and Leeds Salon's websites in the show notes. I have also thrown in the link to his interview for Light on Leeds, which if you don't listen to that show already, then you should. Paul has written on various topics for numerous publications, national and Leeds-based. Paul says that Leeds is a city of debate, and you can read his article arguing that point on the Leeds-based website, Culture Vulture. Again, the link is in the show notes. I think this is a really good episode. Unsurprisingly, Paul is a blast to talk to. You have to listen to the episode, though. Have patience with things. This isn't a podcast where I'm going to go in-depth as to what someone has said or is going to say later in the show. You're on board here, or you aren't. Listen to it or don't. I'm not spoon-feeding anyone. I want you to discover these guests, and I don't want to sell them to you. Each episode is in conversation with every other episode here. They are all the same thing, but not the same thing, and they create patterns, as everything does to us humans. If you've no patience to listen all the way through an interview here, then don't. Life is shorter now, and getting even shorter still. But if you invest the time in these episodes, then I think it will really reward that investment. Okay, so there's some really cringe stuff from me in my past episodes, and there will no doubt be more of that to come, but hopefully with a lot less frequency. Point is that I think there's a really interesting mosaic that's starting to take shape about work on Earth in the year 2022 common era, and what our part as a city is in all of that. I also want to say that when you listen to these interviews, don't take shitty bad faith readings of people because... I know what you're like, Internet. I saw you grow up, Internet, and you're not very nice these days. I'm really grateful to anyone brave enough to come on and talk to me about this. And the reason that I do this is to have these conversations. If you are moved to like or not like something about this show, then tell me, at me, mail me. Now, 
there's an extra 35 minutes of juicy work-based material from this interview that will be available to Patreons only. And only when, only when I reach three patrons. This show is in serious danger of folding very soon. It's taken a lot out of me getting to 35 episodes and so has life. So if you have gotten any value out of this podcast and you can throw in any donation of any amount, it has to be over a pound though, because of the internet, um, via LibrePay, then please go to my website and click on the link at the bottom of the about page. Also, if you try to donate anything and have any issues at all with any of it, please let me know because if you don't, I have no way of knowing. If you can afford to give me the price of a pint with a one-off donation of £3 on Kofi, please do that, or buy a Kofi membership for a pound a month. That will get you access to the Discord for this show. Please, please do that if you can. You have no idea how much it would help my motivation and energy levels to get any positive signs at all. It's a total hero move. So if you want to feel awesome and great, please sign up. If you join the Patreon for a pound a month, you will get access to monthly live streams from me about the making of working hours. I've done the first one. It was a disaster. I'll be replacing it with a video soon. So join now to see that mess before I take it down. Anyway, I'll be working to put bonus material on both Kofi and Patreon, but Patreon is where the bonus from this interview is going. That's if I ever meet my hugely ambitious target of getting a pound a month out of another two listeners. If you're a big time money bags listener, then why not join both the Kofi and the Patreon? Huh? If you can afford to spend a whole two English quid a month to support, that should keep me going on this journey for a bit longer. A thousand, Simon. What the hell were you thinking? This is totally going to kill you. One last point regarding the bonus material. If and when I hit £300 in total donations, I will make the bonus material freely available. So basically, you're never going to get to hear it, are you? That's a real shame because it, it is good. I'm really, really struggling to get to 50 of these. So please, please help me if you can in any way you can. I'm thinking of perhaps putting previously free episodes behind a paywall or maybe just previous seasons behind a paywall or maybe I'll only release episodes if they can reach a fundraising goal. I don't know. Things have to change if the project is to survive these next few months. Patreon bears no fruit and I've lost a lot of money on this venture, a lot to me anyway. Giving these episodes away for free with no sponsorship, no advertising revenue and no subscription support is no longer viable. It never really was. If you enjoy these for free, then enjoy them while they last, because if they don't start generating some revenue for me, they are no longer serving me and they will have to end. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Let's get on with it. As I said, this is a cracking episode and I hope to bring you more like it and join the bloody Patreon. It's only a bloody quid. And I promise the bonus material will be well worth it. If you liked this and would like a little more, then you will bloody love it. So what is it that you do do now then? I'm a civil servant. I've been in the civil service since I was 25. I mean, when I left school, I left school after my O-levels and I was on the dole for a while. And then I got a job in uh, the NHS and was working on outpatients uh, for a clinic for a couple of years. Uh, and then I left and went back to do A-levels, but I kind of flunked them. And then uh, I moved to Leeds and then I got a job in uh, what was the Department for Transport? It's now 
a, a kind of wing of the Department of Transport. It's called National Highways. It's meant to be a government-owned company, but that's a contradiction in terms because if it's the government, it isn't a company, but mm. that, that doesn't matter to them. So uh, that, that's why I'm a civil servant, really. I mean, and that's pretty much been your, your career. You haven't really jumped around and you've just sort of gone into that role and been there. No, when I first moved to Leeds, I was on the dole for a while and I did, uh, I did various stuff. I did some uh, labouring and I did uh, some stalls on Wakefield Market and I did uh, some painting and decorating. But that was all on the side at the time. That was just to, you know, top up my dole. And then, uh, uh, the, the, then they started, I think they were called kind of job clubs or something, a bit like uh, Pauline in... Uh, Royston Vasey, yeah. except they were much nicer than Pauline. And we it was we were kind of forced into them, which was a good thing for me at the time because it forced me to write off for loads of loads of jobs and uh, I eventually got one. So uh I, I mean how do you like it? I mean I guess you you obviously like it well enough that you've stayed there this long. Well when I first started I thought this is crap, I won't do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh I, I'm always very philosophical about the civil service and I say this to any young people who come in I mean it, it's mundane clerical work right you, you, when you've been there for that long you do a job you kind of make it your own in a way mm. so you, you make something of it right but uh, it, it, the, what's good about the civil service is it, it's relatively secure obviously become less secure over the years but still relatively secure not great paid but it's a good basis from which if you want a career right you can move on and up. You can work for that and everything else. And you'll get a, you know, a decent wage of middle higher management. If you have interests outside of the civil service, which I do, it's a great base from which to do them because you get, we get 32 days annual leave. We get flexi leave. When you've been around for as long as I have, you can kind of, you know, kind of come and go. Uh, and, um, you know, I've, for instance, in, in me, I'm 58 now, go back in my thirties. I did my OU degree. While I was at work, and you know, I could I could stay after hours and just type the essays up in work time and print them off in work. So it's it's a good basis for which to to do things. So I'm not I'm all philosophical. I'm not I'm not cynical about it. If you know if it was that bad, then I should have you know I know where the yeah. door is and I could have moved on. It's yeah. it's so when I say it's mundane clerical work, I'm not being critical of it. That that's that's just that's what it is. You know that yeah. it's almost the definition of the civil service. But even within the the work that you do, you know, you, you make, you plow your own furrow and, you know, you get tested by it at times and you, you, new problems arise that you have to solve. And that's always good. Mm. Uh, good for the soul, really good for the brain. Mm. I mean, do you see yourself, is, is that you now? Are you, do you see yourself sort of there for the rest of your career? Or? Yeah, I'm 58. I, I, I'll be there till I'm at least 70. Mm. I don't see the point of retiring anytime soon. I know people have gone at the age of 55 and I think gone to do what? I mean, if they've got something else in life, I mean, obviously people have, mm. uh, you know, family, they might have other hobbies and things like that. But I know lots of people who leave and then, yeah, they're, they've been twiddling their thumbs since, since the age of 55. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's good just to have something to get up and go to every morning because it's something it, to do. It is, and it's a bit like the, it's kind of more you do, the more you can do. I've got an idea in my head that maybe in my 60s, I'll go down to 
four day weeks uh, and things like that. Uh, you know, two day weekend isn't enough. Isn't enough for reading, walking, mm. drinking. <laughs> so, uh, you know, maybe a four day week. Yeah. Um, well, I'll move to my UBI question a bit earlier then, um, since it's kind of related to, to that. So if, if there was a universal basic income, if you were getting enough money not to go to work, um, would you go to work? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. For, for the having something to do or. Uh, I, I cannot, I've got plenty of things to do outside mm. of work, but, uh, it does give a structure. It work is also social and that's really important. Mm. Uh, and in terms of the stuff I do outside of work, which are more political, it keeps me tied in with, uh, you know, uh, ordinary people and ordinary conversations and what's going on the way people see the world and, uh, what, what their interests, what interests them, you know, what's happening in the world, the way it's reflected in the workplace and, and things like that. So, uh, but I th one, if there's a un universal basic income, I'd want to earn more than that. So I'd work anyway yeah. to earn more than the basic income. Mm -hmm. Uh, first and foremost and secondly i think it is the social side to be with people do you want to take us through your sort of experience of, of lockdown was it um was it pretty straightforward were they quite on top of what what they wanted you to do was it kind of like everybody go home you're all going to work on laptops and you had everything organized or was it we don't know what we're doing come in go home uh no it came to that we, we worked right <laughs> up to when lockdown happened so i think that was something like it was the, was it the last Friday in March of 20, yeah, yeah, it was early March. 20, something like that. So we worked right up until the final day. And then they said, then lockdown was imposed and I had to take my laptop home. We all had to take our laptops home. And at first they said that lockdown was for three weeks. And I, I mean, I've, I've been in long relationships with my life, but I've been on my own for the last uh, few years. So I don't tend to have, unless I go away with a mate, I don't tend to have big time off i use my annual leave by having a three-day weekend or, or usually over the summer or uh, uh, sometimes a you know uh, a three-day week so they said it was for three weeks and i thought fantastic and i read like 10 books in three weeks and it was lovely weather so i went walking twice a day and read yeah. it was very boring and i did you know I zoomed with mates and uh, and rang people uh, to have a bit of social life and I would log on twice a day because my uh, job is kind of a drafting job. I'd log on twice a day and I'd have messages from people um, saying, can you do this, that, and the other? And I'd just reply and say, yeah, I'll do that when I'm back in the office. I'll do that when I'm back in the office. And then at the end of three weeks, it just went on. I thought, oh, Christ, I'm going to have to actually do some work from home. Mm -hmm. And I, I could do most of my job from home. I can't do all of my job from home because after there's things after scan and then you add them to something and all this and i can't do that but even what i could do from home on a small work laptop i couldn't do this easy and i hate hated working from home i hate it i like the separation of home and work i don't bring uh, uh my work life into home at all and it you know living on my own it doesn't suit me at all it's it was you know almost prison-like in a way you know mm. that's a bit over the top i suppose uh but um 
so I didn't like that at all. So after about three weeks, I had to start trying to uh, do uh, some work. Uh, and then we came to the May and the government relaxed restrictions. So I said, can I go back? And they said, no, it's too dangerous. And I said, well, our employer said we can anyway. Then it came to the 1st of June and they relaxed them again. And I had to demand the right to go back to work because I was getting seriously behind. Mm. Um, and they let me back and I was the only person in the office for about three months. Uh, the, the, the building was open because there was other departments in there that have to be open 24 seven, like the environment agency. Mm. So the security guards had to come around every hour to check on me by law to make sure I wasn't dead. And, uh, so I've been back in work full time since June, 2020, five, five days a week. Really? So when did everyone else come back? Um, uh, things got relaxed and I think about that, the September that year and and people started coming back first and foremost, started coming back because there was something wrong with their laptop. And, okay. they, and IT people started coming back actually before then. When I say I was the only person in, I was the only person in on my floor. There was a floor mm. above where the IT people are. And they used that time to do some updating work. So there was some mm. other people in actually. So mm. people started drifting back in to get their laptop fixed and everything else. Uh, and then occasionally people started coming in to do stuff that similarly they could not do at home or was too difficult to do at home. So people would mm. come in and use the work facilities uh, to get specific jobs done that was easier to do in work. And, and gradually people started dripping back into work over, over you know, the next 18 months. Mm. So, is, I mean, is the policy now just everyone back in work or have they kind of let people, some people stay working from home? Uh, the policy at the moment is people are meant to do 40% in the office. Right. So it's so, like a hybrid working model. Yeah. So uh, there's a small number. The IT people are in almost every day. I'm in almost every day. There's other people who do three or four days a week. Generally, Mondays or Fridays are very empty. There might be six to 10 people in the whole place. Uh, Tuesdays to Thursdays are very full uh, at the moment. Has there been any noticeable change in your work that's arrived from Brexit? Uh, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. No. So, um, I mean, is, is there anything that you see in the future? Is there any way that it could impact your work? What, and if so, what would that likely be? Uh, no, not as a civil service. I mean, you know, the civil service is a bureaucracy. The European Union is a, is a bureaucracy. It's not... Uh, it's not going to affect being in or outside the European Union is going to have no effect whatsoever on, uh, bureaucratic jobs mm. in that sense. I suppose it's going to affect the type of paper that you're working on, but that's about it. Not even that. I mean, we, in the department, you work, uh, you know, we're looking after the trunk road and motorway network, mm. uh, the, when uh, maintenance is done and roads are built, they have to go by standards. Those standards are actually European standards, mm. uh, which are just common, common, common sense standards. So it, it doesn't even affect things in that way. It's not like, uh, you would move away from European standards because, you know, uh, you know, if, you, if somebody's worked out the best way to build a road, then everybody adopts that it is, those things wouldn't, wouldn't really change. In terms of your role. 
do you have to do any social media for your work or are you, you know, it, how much does that actually affect your work these days, social media? doesn't affect my full-time job. I don't have to do any social media stuff to do at work. It's, it, it's irrelevant. They have internal things. Like we have a thing called Yammer. Have you heard of that? It's yeah, kind yeah. of like a cross between Twitter and Facebook for internal. So they have an internal thing now that we should add a few years, which we didn't have before. They've always, they've had a website for years or a few decades. Mm. And there's been for at least two or three decades, a, a facility to comment on articles that are put on that website. But now that's become extended in work through the use of Yammer. Uh, and that's so various networks have sprung up. That's become a site for debate on things within work. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an interesting element because obviously we've gone through this period since uh, the end of the Cold War of depoliticization uh, uh, and everything else and the decline of the unions and political discussion doesn't really take, there's no union meetings, there's no meaty political discussions. I mean, there's little before it, but there's, uh, there's definitely not now, but then. Uh, that's become a, a, a thing on which sometimes controversial discussions do now take, take place. Sure. Well, that's internal in terms of social, social media, yeah, that's irrelevant really. I don't, I don't know if, uh, that, that's relevant to stuff I do outside of work, but it's not relevant to work. I initially on some of the questions I started because I have a union background, I worked at the TUC for years, so, mm -hmm. um. I wanted to have a question about unions in there, but I generally don't get round to it. So, um, as we've gone through things pretty, pretty swiftly here, yeah. um, I'll, I'll ask you, um, so are you in the union? Have you been asked to be in the union? I mean, like the civil service is still an area because the public sector still has some unionization. I, I am a, a lifelong trade unionist, um, right. but. I left the union in November. Okay. The first time in my life, last November. That was the PCS. Right. But I might, I might join either Affinity or the Workers of England Union. I'm looking right. at both of them. Probably Affinity because it's a bit yeah. cheaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I kind of got a, a sense from what you were saying and how you were talking about work that you might have been, because you mentioned sort of political activity sort of outside. Mm. And I know that you do the, um, I'm going to get this the wrong way around. Is it Leeds Salon or Salon Leeds? It's the Leeds Salon. Leeds Salon. Yeah. The debating society. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing then that, you know, you say lifelong union, is that because you were brought up in a unionized family or is that just, you got asked at an early age, you got involved and then you were like, this is something that I'm interested in. How did, what's yeah, your relationship that, to the union? How do you kind of come into it? That, that's, that's quite interesting. I, I did, in a sense, grow up in a union family. My dad worked for the uh, water board and he was shop steward and he used mm. to go away every year to the conference. Sometimes we'd have a cheap holiday because his accommodation was paid and we'd, uh, me, me and my mum would go and, uh, you know, wherever it was in Scarborough, we'd sit on the beach while my dad was at the conference. Me, my older brother was shop steward in Metal Box, which is an engineering firm. Everyone was in the union. But I, I wasn't uh, political as a teenager. I wasn't interested in all that. Uh, you know, I was just interested in music and other stuff. Mm. But when I did start working, 
uh, joining the union was more of an automatic thing rather than a conscious political thing. Yeah. I suppose that just that sense of, you know, added protection really. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't begin to, uh, be political to think politically really until, uh, my twenties, early twenties. I mean, I started working when I was 17 I didn't, until my early twenties and, and stuff. And then that was during the eighties and, uh, I became more, more politicized then. And the union became more of a political thing rather than just a, a safety thing. So, uh, I, I mean, what sort of, have you taken roles within the union then? Have you been a rep? Are you? Yeah, I've been a, a rep in the past. Uh, last year I was going to go on the board of the regional executive committee. Uh, but you, you needed two signatures and I could only get one. And even I was shocked at how few people were in the union in my workplace, even the Bolshe people like me, even they weren't in it. And, uh, it was during lockdown. So it was difficult. It's still, there was hardly anybody in. So it was difficult to get that second signatures, but, um, uh, then I had a bit of a, a dispute and, uh, I, I left the union, which is also saving me 15 pound a month. Mm. Although the, you know, the money's not the point is it's the principle, but, um, you know, I left, I left in November anyway, with the, idea I mean, I would, of, have, you know, I would imagine it took something, you know, to, for you to actually leave. It, it did. And I was torn about it. It was very torn about it. I had basically I had the, the uh, I had a grievance taken out against me mm. in work and part of the result of that grievance to go back to the social media is lots of the things that go on work. I've, I've commented on, uh, aspects of, uh, workplace culture, aspects of things that are foisted upon the workforce, different uh, courses, different types of ideas. And I've often kicked back against, uh, uh, certain elements of contemporary managerial culture and stuff. Uh, somebody uh, due to this, somebody took out a grievance against me and I inevitably lost the grievance. The result was. I've been banned for two years from commenting on any workplace website whatsoever. Now that hasn't stopped me from commenting on every workplace website. I have challenged it mm. and I've kind of won because mm. they've backed down and they've backed off. I've put a good case. I wrote to the board of national highways where I work and I, a, a, a 2000 word letter saying why I'd always challenged certain agendas in the workplace and the reason for it. And, uh, I actually had a kind of an informal, uh, meeting with HR and one of the board members to, to run through this. So they've backed off from the ban, but when the ban was imposed, I went to the union and said, will you back me against this ban? You know, and they wouldn't back me. And, uh, I, I thought it was a, a fundamental free speech issue. And I know that affinity and workers of England will fight free speech issues. Mm. The public sector unions, I don't think any of them would fight a free speech issue. Even one as mild as mine, mm. uh, I don't think they take it up because I don't think they believe in it. They're obsessed with other things. Not that they should be obsessed with just that thing, but there's, uh, I, it was just a point of principle. And I, I was torn for months thinking whether to stay or go. But actually, the, the other thing is that we, like I said, we're separated off from a government-owned company. I think there's possibly, certainly in our workplace, there's, there's hardly anybody in the union. It's almost an irrelevance anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm looking to join, uh, 
one of these independent unions again you, just for just for that kind of protection were you i mean was it kind of were you upset about leaving i mean i guess you would be i i kind of would be at that point if you'd be then it's like you know you expected them to come to your corner and they're not even trying yeah i yeah it, it I, I i didn't like leaving Mm. But um, I don't know. I, th- I think for a long time we've probably needed something newer. So certainly, the trade union movement needs a shake-up. I think that out of the main the mainstream TUC unions, the only one for me in my in the last couple of decades worth the name of a union is has been the RMT. Mm. Uh, 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 the rest, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's just like they've got no visibility, isn't it? It's like, well, what are you even doing? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a push and pull because if people want to change it, you can get up and do something about it. But then mm. they're, they're also, they're so uh, inherently bureaucratic that, it, you know, the union puts obstacles itself in the way of, mm. of that kind of thing happening. They did kind of tentatively join the, uh, the kind of left opposition groups uh, uh, who try and do things, uh, but I don't know. It, yeah. I, I don't like not being in a union. So should we move on to, should we talk about, uh, lead salon for a bit? Like how, how did that come about? What is it? How did it come about? How long have you been doing it? And, um, yeah, if you want to talk about that. We started about 2007, 2008, a, a group of us just uh, kind of half dozen blokes started a book club. We used to meet in Leeds and we discuss rather than a piece of literature, uh, or fictional literature, we discuss a piece of political literature, a book that was out, you know, maybe a, uh, a great new history book on something that come out. We say, well, let's read this, you know, what, what's good about it, what's bad about it and everything else. Around the same time, I got invited to judge in a national school debating competition through people I I knew. One of the people involved in the book group was in a thing called Civitas, and he was involved in a thing called Debating Matters, and I judged in that. And um, that kind of, so there's the book group going, the, started judging in, in this thing, and then I discovered a thing called Manchester Salon and a Huddersfield Salon. So we started going to them. Neither of those knew each other existed. They were kind of operating. People picked this salon tag up and used it. And then we got the Manchester salon. Had a, somebody came over from the States who'd had a book out and they asked to speak at Manchester salon. They said, we can't fit you in. We've got somebody. Why not try these people in Leeds? And we said, we thought, well, we can't have him speaking to six blokes in a pub. Let's see if we can pull something bigger off. We went to Waterstones in Leeds hmm. and said, we've got potentially this author and we could hold a debate about his book here. And we did, and that that was the first one. And once we had the first one in place, we thought we've got to have a second to follow it up. Mm. And we got a, an author. He writes for the Independent called Ken and Malik, who'd written he'd written the the best, my favourite work of nonfiction, which is a book called The Meaning of Race, which is fantastic. But at that time, he'd had a book out called uh, From Fatwa to Jihad: The Rush to Fair and Its Legacy. And within it, he discussed quite a bit about the Beast and Bombers who who committed the seven mm. seven atrocity. Uh, so we thought that was ideal. So we said to Waterstones, we, we want to follow up with, with this. And they said, uh, we don't want to do that. We're afraid, yeah. of tr- we're afraid of trouble. 
Yeah. So we went to Borders Bookshop in Leeds, which Borders is a new chain that existed. And they say, we would love to have Ken and Malik. And that was the second one. And then suddenly you're off, right? There was no, there was no grand plan. It was quite innocent and naive. And the next minute you think, well, we've got to organize another one. Next mm. minute you're around for a couple of years. Next minute yeah. you're around for 10 years yeah. and, uh, and, or, or, or longer. And you're, you're a feature of the cultural scene in Leeds and you become, you know, a, a, a kind of, I suppose, a kind of minor somebody in the minor independent cultural scene of, of Leeds. Because I write now and again for a, a Leeds-based blog called Culture Vulture. In fact, I've just yeah. submitted an article today, uh, a critique of aspects of the Leeds 2023 uh, strategic plan, which should be uh, hopefully published by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, th- uh, and one thing's lead to another. We've we also for the last uh, was nine years, we've run our own school debating competition for years 10 and 11. Mm-hmm. We have the final of this year's competition at Thackeray Medical Museum on Wednesday. Things move and develop and opportunities open up. And through then I've written occasionally uh, uh, pieces in the mainstream press. I've had stints on tv i've done this newspaper reviews on sky tv so f- from a small book group and a naive oh let's pull off a, a debate the next minute thing things kind of uh, have developed quite nicely mm. you, you know over, over the years really so um yeah uh, so the salon's just a space where uh, f- the absolute right of free speech can take place regardless of the laws of the land you know people can say whatever they want and do sometimes and uh, uh you know and you know sometimes people you know people make great contributions sometimes people make wacky contributions and, and even reactionary contributions and you know mm. pe- then people have a choice to uh laugh criticize them or ignore uh, ignore those kind of things so it, it's gone pretty well but leeds is one of the things i've really pushed about leeds over the years is I coined the term that Leeds was a city of debate. Mm. It's, it's, it, it ebbs and flows, but at any one time, it's probably got about eight, up to eight to 12 uh, discussion fora going. You've got Cafe Scientifique, which was founded in Leeds mm. in the 1990s. It exists all over the world. Uh, and then you've got a lot of cafes inspired by the idea, like Cafe Psychology, again, founded in Leeds, which has branches around the country. Uh, you've got, uh, you had the skeptics that they're, they're not going at the moment. There's a couple of philosophy and pubs groups in Leeds. There's, there's taking soundings, there's all sorts. So there again, we knew nothing of that before, uh, we started really, uh, I, I, and we've benefited from that because when we started, we built up a, a, a large audience quite quickly in a large, uh, uh, mailing list. And it was really due to the fact that it was things that existed already. There was already a kind of critical uh, audience re- ready and waiting for that thing. And it's not like the old left days where it's a zero sum game where, you know, uh, you know, people at a communist party meeting don't want you at a socialist party meeting. It's like the more the merrier. It just builds a, a critical audience for for kind of debate. So that the salon uh, and what we do, but work is work. And that's the basis for everything else I'm able to do. But the salon is my passion, really. So a few questions sort of flow out of that for me. Do you think that, do you think you'd be able to do the lead salon if you, 
you know, if your career was different, if you were sort of having to hop between different jobs or say if you were freelance or something like that, is it the stability of having that job that you've had for such a long time that's allowed you to do it? No, it's, it's the, uh, the fact that I can get away with doing stuff in work and I can print stuff out and everything else. And, it, yeah, and that's, <laughs> that stability is very useful to run in the salon. The salon would still carry on. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, the timing of it and how many took place might be dictated by uh, other things if I didn't have a, a steady, stable job. Mm. Um, you know, it was on shifts and it was, like you say, it was in and out of uh, kind of more contractual work and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, the, na- the nature of the job might affect when and how many salons take place, but it wouldn't affect the existence of the salon. So, I mean, I guess you see a few, like you're going to see a ton of social benefits from the debate and from the format. So if you just give us a little sort of brief, like how you run the format of the clubs um, and then sort of why you see them as important. Like to me, so when we were discussing sort of why I'm doing this earlier, I mean, part of the reason that I want it to be long form interviews and to be conversations is that because of the way that the media is moving, you see less and less of that, you know, it's, mm. it's more and more sound bites and more and more clips and less and less time of people and their mistakes and so on. I mean, podcast is a good medium for just people mm. rabbiting on. Um, but yeah, this was important to me as well. And I kind of get the sense that the debating societies are kind of doing something similar for you in that they're, you know, they're giving people critical skills. They're giving people the ability to articulate themselves and their position and, and have those positions interrogated. Um, I mean, sorry if I'm kind of taking your answers, but what's your, what's your take? <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote about, when I first wrote about Leeds being a city of debate, I kind of said, asked people why they thought Leeds was um, more dynamic, not just, one, why Leeds was more dynamic. Two, that debating for was springing up all around the country, right? So I'm going back to 2000 and when I started writing about it, say 2009, 10 uh, onwards for the next uh, few years. And I, I thought, actually going back to that kind of depoliticization, that kind of death of politics, I think that if you wanted uh, a meaty political debate about anything, I think for a while, things have got a, more, a bit politically more fractious and interesting and meaty in the last few years. But for a while, if you wanted that, I think you had to create it. It wasn't supplied by the mainstream parties who you couldn't put a fag paper between, really. They were much of a, a muchness. They were bland, you know, technocratic organizations. Yeah, elections was kind of dominated by a penny off tax here, penny on tax there. And you're like, yeah, that's not going to change my life. And uh, so if you wanted a discussion about, uh, you know, real issues of uh, liberty, equality, progress, what, what that might mean, uh, and all these kind of old-fashioned issues. I think you had to kind of create that. And I think by the size of the audiences, particularly when I first went to the Cafe Scientific, the original one, which gets like 80-odd people, you know, people, are, people want to know and engage uh, mm. with ideas. And for, for instance, we, don't do, we do politics, science, and culture. We do anything and everything. So we've had debates on quantum theory, and it's one of the first big debates we had, you know, we, we started off with about 20 people and then we get 30, 40. We did one on quantum theory. We got 55 people packed into Blackwell's bookshop in Leeds, 
you know, people are curious and interested, but but they've had to kind of look outside the mainstream, I think. And I think the uh, the fora that have sprung up and, and the things that you're doing in like the Light on Leeds interview I did uh, are, are really uh, interesting. And I think they all contribute to that uh, importance of dialogue. There's, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, there's a, a 20th century philosopher called Hannah Arendt, and she said, most political action is transacted in words. And I think that's really, really important. Um, obviously you can talk to the nth degree and then not do anything in the real world. But I think, uh, humanity is fascinating. The world is fascinating. It's really difficult as well. Uh, and all these things provide an outlet to, through dialogue to explore, you know, what it means to be human. What's the point of work, you know, where, you know, and. Uh, I mean, that's my central question. <laughs> it's like, why are we doing this? Why do yeah. we do this? Mm. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, the, do you get, do you get a real mix of people as well? Do you get a mix of ages and ethnicities and genders or is it like, does it end up being a boys club or does it depend on what the subject's on? Uh, we, we do get a real mix. I'd say, uh, it's about two thirds men and a third women at a salon. And that's quite a good ratio. I know from lots of the other fora when I first started, uh, some people would say in some of the others, do you get any women? And say, yeah, we got about third women. Oh, we don't get any women. We don't get any. And, and, and maybe sometimes that's because it's obviously uh, uh, women of a certain age are, are still predominantly left with the house and kids and and those kind of things to look after more more than men although things are a lot more shared but also because it's night time in the city and all that kind mm. of thing i think there's kind of uh, things like that that um affect that demographic um age-wise it tends to be more middle-aged than younger sometimes for some events we did want remember it was a funny one a, a mate of mine called Tremanda harkness was writing a book which has been out for a while now called can see it big data does size matter about the idea of big data and before she, while she was writing the book she said why don't you do a, a salon on big data and i'm a, a tech neanderthal and i thought i looked at it and she laughed at my face i said that sounds boring uh, then i was walking into town on new year's eve and this uh, fella uh, who i know who does community philosophy who comes to the salon now and again goes i've got a great idea for a salon i've met him in the street goes well Big data, I said. Samantha Harkness said that to me. And then I typed big data and leads in and realized that Leeds University got the ERSC grant for doing investigations into big data. And I thought the stars have aligned, the gods are telling me something here. <laughs> so we organized one and we got 60 people. And there's all these data mills and data this and data, data that in Leeds. And it was great. It was, it was uh, the, the uh, you know, once. This before a book was out. I've read a book and it's, it's fascinating. But uh, the discussion, you know, about what is it and to what extent do we want to allow it or not allow it, and everything. Else, does it, con you know, interfere in our liberty or or what should we give up? Be willing to give up and to for the social, you know, for the greater good and all that kind of stuff. So it was fantastic, and it taught it taught me a lesson. Uh, but that was, for, for instance, that you know, that was uh, a lot of young people at that. So it can, de it can depend uh, on the topic. We did one after the first two after lockdown, we did one on identity politics, uh, a lot of young students at that one. And then the next one we did, ironically enough, 
was on uh, conflict, on uh, called Beyond Conflict, and looking at the rivalries in the world that was concentrating on China at the time. Uh, the discussion of Russia, uh, and that was. Uh, I think there was like one young person. I want to say young person. I mean, somebody under forty or thirty. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, it just depends on the topic. But overall, over a series of salons, we will get an, uh, we will get a decent mixture of ages and demographics and classes and everything else. I mean, do any of the when you do the the schools debates, do any of the kids sort of go under? Do any of them like get the bug of debating and be like, I want to do this or? Uh, yeah, we've had some of the uh, the youngsters who've taken part come down to the discussions occasionally. We do years 10 and 11, which is 14 to 16-year-olds. Sometimes I do six-form competitions, sometimes between colleges. And I've also, I'm also involved with helping run some of the National Debating Matters events. So we've had people come along. I can't remember whether they come along via the six-form events, to tell the truth. I, think, I, think, I don't think I've had anybody come along via my years. 10, 11 events, uh, but we've had them come come along via the, the six form events. And, and then some of them have gone on to, to help out. So I've had a couple of people, I've run two events at Outwood Grange Academy over the last five years, day long events involving six schools from their academy chains. So to do that, you have two rooms with two groups in each room and then the winners of each room meet. So you need somebody else to help you that does the same thing that I do in one room and both uh, at one time I had, um, an ex debating matters, uh, alumni who, uh, helped out in that. So, um, but you know, it's a trickle, it's not a, a flood. Is there a website or, um, do you have a social media account for it? Where could people find out more about lead salon? Well, it's on our website. We have the lead salon website and the school mm. debating stuff's, uh, all on the website on the front page news um we've got no salons coming up at the moment i'm hoping to put something together on ukraine mm. i'm just scrabbling around for possible speaks at the moment but i've got the final on wednesday and that's taken up uh, a lot of time i only got all the pieces in place for that including sponsors for various prizes and the final judges and all sorts of stuff by last mm. week so I, I really didn't have a, a public discussion salon planned until till april anyway What's, sorry, what's the hard thing about it? I mean, is it like getting rooms and stuff or is it, have you got that kind of thing sorted or is it getting the speakers or? Um, none of it's particularly hard. Sometimes it can, it can be difficult putting a panel together. That can be very difficult. Uh, the rooms, the, we, we've generally used the carriage works. We used to use the Tetley a bit. Uh, that's problematic now because the prices have almost doubled. The prices have gone up and, and we, we survive on what we take on the door. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so that's kind of problematic. It, it can be a problem putting a salon together. It'd be, if you do, sometimes we, we have a salon where we might have three or four panelists and then they each get five minutes to do their intro and then we open up to debate. And sometimes we have a salon where we might have one person say, who's got a book out and then we have two respondents to mm. challenge them. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we just had a, a, a one, just one individual. So when we came back, just to make it easy, I had two salons where I just had one individual with a book out each. I didn't get any respondents. I just thought I'll make it easy. You know, things are still up in the air. Whether you're getting respondents or, or a, a panel, it can be difficult to get people on certain issues. So if you, um, 
So if you wanted to do uh, a salon about uh, woke culture, uh, you might get somebody who criticizes that quite easily, but to get somebody who will defend it and perhaps come outside of the university bubble where maybe people kind of think the same and everybody agrees with them into a public forum where people might quite stridently disagree with them. That is quite difficult. And we, we have done it. We've had, we did one on identity politics a few years ago and we got somebody from a, a kind of uh, race department who kind of pushed kind of critical race theory from Manchester. And we got a feminist from Huddersfield who was kind of into feminism and into the trans stuff. And they both came on and they were great. Uh, and we got somebody who criticized both of those things. So we had everything represented on the panel and, that, and that's what we want. We want all views mm. in the audience. We want all views on a panel if we can get it. But it can be difficult to coax people out of the ivory towers into uh, into the public square. Going back to your, your day job kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. It's kind of, um, are you aware of Jane, Jane McAlevey? She's a... American trade unionist. She's an organizer. Um, she's very good. Check her out on YouTube. Um, All right. Let me write that down. How do you spell her name? Uh, so it's M-C-A-L-E-V-E-Y. Uh, so she's, uh, one of the things that she was talking about when she was talking about organizing, she likes to ask people sort of, what are the you know, right now, what are the three things that you would change about your job, your, your role? So I've, I've kind of stolen that question off her. Uh, so if, if there were, what three things would you change right now about your work? If you could, uh, get promoted and earn more money. Is that, is that a kind <laughs> of answer true. you want? Is that, is that, uh, well, the same, it's the same thing. Uh, I would. I've challenged aspects. What I've cha- what got me into trouble with the grievance was uh, the identity politics agenda that has been pushed on the workforce increasingly in the last five years, really for about the last two decades. And I would scrap that altogether. And for, for a number of reasons. One, certainly in the public sector, it contravenes public sector impartiality because what they end up doing is having to push a particular worldview to the workforce it oversteps the wage labor relationship but i think more, even more importantly i think it undermines the principle of equality it make rather than people uh transcending uh race and sex and uh, and everything else i think it's become more of an obsession and i think it's damaging and that was, uh, and because I challenged these things, that's, of course, you challenge these things and you get called a bigot and everything else and people have a go at you. Uh, it, it, but it, we've, it's gone to, it got to the point in our workplace in the last few years where they've set up a network. Originally, they set up a BAME network, which is now renamed. Even when they'd set it up, they were so thick, they didn't realize that BAME was a contentious term. And they set up a separate network for LGBT people. And I pointed out that you, this, that this is a form of soft segregationism. You are separating people off into networks based on their skin color and their sexuality. And I said, and I know this is well-meaning, 
I know the idea from this comes from a good place. And I know that the people who want to do this want the same things that I want, which is equality and no discrimination. But actually this is, this is not a good, good path to go down. This, this is, this is damaging. So I would get rid of all diversity training from the workplace. I would leave it to the workforce themselves to work things out themselves. And I have faith that we would do that. I have faith that if somebody was being mean and nasty and discriminatory, people can sort that out. And uh, so, uh, so on a, on a more political level, I would scrap all diversity training. That's what I'd do in the workplace. So is that two? Is that two that we've got? Have you got a third? Uh, can't think of anything else. Mm. What, what kind of other examples of people given for how they change it? Is it job specific uh, or is it just generic? Well, sometimes it'll be job specific. Sometimes it'll be people sort of, I mean, it depends how much kind of autonomy you've got in your role as well, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, if you can kind of decide what you're going to do with your work and what direction you're going to take your work in, if generally you're not that, the things that frustrate you, I mean, it's generally around things that frustrate you, isn't it? And things that you wish you could do or, uh, or, or, or the power to do. Autonomy is really important. I've just, for the last 25 years, I've done two different jobs, which are kind of one-off jobs and you kind of become expert in them. And I'm quite like that. And then you kind of become your own boss. You know, there's a whole line management chain above me, but nobody knows what, what I do. You do it, specifically. Yeah. <laughs> which is, which is good for a number of reasons, but it, it means everything falls on your shoulders. So I, I do have that kind of autonomy where there's lots of clerical jobs. So yeah, the, when I said mundane clerical jobs, that's kind of the average norm. It's not the way they all are. But if I wasn't doing that, I'd just be in like a team where I was doing some invoices, then I was writing a letter, then I was doing a bit of this and doing a bit of that. Um, and I like having something to do in which you can uh, develop a certain expertise and knowledge. And, that, or, and it comes down to what you said, that feeling of autonomy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, from from the stuff that I've read and the things that I remember, um, it's it's generally what the, what the things that drive you and work are purpose, autonomy, and a sense of mastery. So, like a sense of being able to direct your own work to a certain degree, um, a reason why you're doing the work, and a sense that you're going to get better at the work. Mm. And I think that's spot on. I mean, that's kind of what most people want to do. I mean, like, even if you just, you know, I just go into work, I do my job, I come home and then I have my life. Mm. It's like, why you're at the job, you want to be good at it. You know, even if it's something basic, like if it's customer service, you want to be nice. You want to be polite. You want to be helpful. You want to be good at helping people. Don't you? It's like most people want to be good at what they're doing, even if they don't like their job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. So we were on change there. So speaking change wise, I, I've got a question on climate change, but I want to bring in the wider sort of like green agenda stuff. And I want to bring in your role specific area because you're working on roads. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want to bring in some stuff about road, you know, like planning and then the, the, the sort of the infrastructure build. I mean, I don't know how involved you are in that, that area, because I know there'll be all sorts of specific subsections and so on. Um, but in terms of 
road building and things like, you know, when they do road widening projects where it's like, well, we're going to put in another lane, but by the time it's built, there's going to be more traffic so that that, that's, that capacity is already filled up. So we're going to have to develop another one, like all of that kind of thing. And then with the climate emergency and then with, you know, other world events and things that are being driven by things like resource shortages and increased temperatures and crop failures and sinking islands and sinking villages. Like, so what, what are you doing in your work that sort of deals with that or changes it? And what, what could you see? There's a question here that I'm trying to get to, but if you could talk a little bit around you know, sort of being able to do something on climate and then at the same time building roads. That that's my my question essentially. Okay, doke. Let me just switch the light on because it is getting it's darker yeah, here yeah. than it looks on that screen. Uh, yeah, the um, it, it, it it's uh, you should ask that now because they've set they've got a new kind of environmental team in National Highways, which is responsible for the. Uh, carbon neutral, or is it carbon zero, or both uh, net, uh, net agendas? Zero. Net zero, yeah. yeah. Uh, agendas. So uh, that's being pushed a lot right now um, in terms of uh, machinery and equipment. I think when you're building roads, I think uh, net zero is is impossible. I don't think you can build, you could ever build anything a building or a road and be net zero. So, but obviously you want to set your aims high to achieve a better outcome. It's a bit like, you know, as a footballer, you want to play a hundred percent. You never will, but you'll play better. Um, uh, just because the nature of construction, um, means that's, it's kind of impossible to achieve that, but they've got these, these aims in terms of the equipment they use and, uh, going electric, although there's been recent discussion about how environment, environmental electric cars are, and they, they seem quite poor, actually, in terms of uh, uh, the amount of miles you'd have to do to uh, be more environmentally friendly than a, a, pet, a, a internal combustion engine car. And at the moment, batteries a battery car actually can't go for that long to achieve the gains. But anyway, it's, it's all a bit technical. But nonetheless, they're, they're, they're plowing on to uh, try and achieve the central government aims in the department through um, looking at how they can uh, best, what equipment they could use and how they can best use equipment and material to be more carbon neutral, I think. So that, that's that's happening right now. And in fact, they've had some seminars in work which people can log on to and listen to about it just this week. Mm. So it's very apposite. Mm. So what is that? They're putting kind of debates around this onto online. Uh, it's just like explaining it and inviting oh, right. okay, qu yeah. in questions. So yeah, this is what we're doing. Blah blah blah. And then people can phone in to say, well, why don't you try this? And why, why are you doing it that way? And blah, 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 blah. And is this really safe? So people can, uh, I, I think people can have a, a, a debate about it. Uh, well, I certainly think people, people can. That's, I think that's the point of having the webinars about it. So, uh, you know, that, that's happening right now. So 
does it feel in any way substantively different from anything, you know, your typical kind of CSR corporate kind of greenwash of like, oh, we should do a green thing because that's in the news and we may as well look like we're doing something or do you think it's substantive? I, no, I think it is different that the, because all, all the green stuff before, which has been going on for about two decades, was a, which was a thing about counting how much paper we used in the office. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. recycling. Uh, and yeah, just kind of, it's, it's just minor recycling things. So I think this is more substantial than that. Yeah. It, 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 like it's about equipment and machinery and materials and everything else. So it's a more substantial thing. Because and it's about your suppliers as well. You know, it's not just about like, Oh, well, can everyone in the office just use this bit? Well, that's instead? it. Be because also if, if you want to solve environmental problems, you have to do that at, at a big, uh, <laughs> to use a counterintuitive term, a big industrial level rather than mm. just lots of individuals. I saw the, mm. uh, the comedian Jeff Norcott in Ilkley a couple of years ago. And he said, do you know what? When, it, when the end of the world happens, I don't think I'll be thinking, I wish I'd wash my yogurt pots out. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, that was the, that was the kind of way things have been, uh, you know, uh, wash your yoga pots out and now it, it, it's more like, um, and we might do something about it. What can you do at a, an industrial level to solve yeah. an industrial problem? Yeah. Thank you again to Paul for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks of course, most of all to you, my dear, sweet, non-financially contributing listener, come on the bloody show. If you're in Leeds or from Leeds, come on this show. I am inviting you. Yes, you, you listening. I'm personally inviting you right now. Come on the show. You think you're boring? I don't. Come on the show. You can't talk about work? Quit. Come on the show. Be anonymous. Come on the show. Come on the show and come on the show now. Why? I'll tell you for why. Because this is doomed. I'm doomed. We're doomed. What is doomed? And of course, how and where are doomed? You know why you're doomed and we're doomed. But why is this doomed? money, time, resources, the same reason everything is doomed, doomed from the start. The point is to try though, isn't it? And I did. Human labor is not renewable, not mine anyway. It is a very finite resource and its energy costs are high. I am living unsustainably. Sure, podcasts are low overhead, but this has cost me more than four grand over two and a half years, and I've got less than a fiver back in return for it. Not sustainable not generative, degenerative. I haven't been paid for any work since October 2020, and I now very seriously doubt that I will ever get enough revenue from this venture to even add up to the equivalent of being paid for minimum hours at minimum wage. This is my dream. This is my self-actualization. This will never happen. This is very disheartening. It saps what energy I do have and that I can muster for the project as does the world falling apart around me at ever greater speeds. Well, at the same time, nothing at all ever happens, ever. I'm really struggling now. I haven't even reached 50 episodes in my third bloody year. I can't do this project on my own. I need to be able to bring people on to work on stuff I am weak on. I also have to have someone helping me to just keep going. I need to be able to advertise the show and do so in the right places and attract a broad array of guests and find my listeners. I have to have feedback. I need something other than myself to tell me if I'm getting warmer or colder, if I'm getting things right or doing things wrong. I need to feel that someone other than me thinks what I'm attempting to do has any value or worth. 
What I have been doing since October 2019 is not work. It has been a lot of time and effort and emotion and thought poured into something personal and then made public. But that is not work. The life force and energy I've spent on this over the last few years is not work because there is no other here. There's no client, no customer, no agent, no editor, no owner, no subscriber. There's no guests queuing up. There's no listener letters or comments to read every week or even every month. There is just activity. Nothing is exchanged. I get nothing and therefore you also get nothing. I gave you nothing. I did nothing. I just talked in your ear and initiated a conversation for you to listen to. I took that conversation and turned it into something to be listened to. I did so with intent. And that was just activity, not labor, small l labor. I created no value. I create no value. And I have done so for nearly three years now. There are a lot of people who create no value and who get huge wads of cash. They're important. I just do something and some people notice it for a moment and some people don't. And so mostly really, I just shout into the wind. I don't even shout what I want to, and I don't want to just be shouting. I want to talk. I want to hear back, but you don't hear back because no one is there. Well, you can only do that for so long without any support and encouragement from others. Without it being shared, what you do is not work. I'm not going to talk again here about the Patreon or the Discord or Kofi or Liberpay. Give me money, though. I'm going to talk about sharing. I need you to share. I need you to find a loiner and get them on this podcast. I want you to think of five loiners that you know, and I want you to send them an episode of this show that you like. And I want you to tell them that you think they would be bloody brilliant on this show. I want you to tell them that it will be great publicity and branding for them. I want you to tell them that it will help them think about their work in a new way, that it's like work therapy. These are both things people who have been on the show have said, BT dubs. If you can bother five people, then I might get one of them. And so if I can't get you to come on, then at least I can maybe get you to get someone else on the show for me. I want to speak to truckers, shop owners, startups, someone going bankrupt, shelf stackers and road sweepers, radical booksellers and jobbing journalists. Whoever you are and whatever you do and however you are punished or rewarded by work, I want to know about it. I think this information is both fascinating and important. What are we doing as the great men burn our world and take us into nuclear war? I want anyone and everyone I can get on the show. And I really want you to come on the podcast now, like right now. Please, please don't wait. Email me, DM me, contact me on Facebook. If you're connecting on Facebook, then message me to say you're connecting as a working hours listener because I've had a bunch of randos recently and so I've stopped accepting those now. So if you're connecting because of the show, let me know that, please. Thank you. It's just two hours of your life to record. The whole process is slow, though. So record now. Record now and repent at your leisure because you get approval over what you've said. I wish you didn't. But this is your work and life and I need you to be okay with what you've said because I can't afford legal and I don't want you at risk and you know better than me what you can say and can't say. So as I sit around having a nervous breakdown pretending to be all cool about you not having listened to your bloody interview yet, you can be safe in the knowledge that you have the time to think over whether you should have said that thing about that thing or not. Now's the pathetic bit please help out like please please share the podcast write a review 
rate it in Spotify, five stars, Apple, everywhere, share on Facebook and Twitter and review it on Podchaser and all the directories, link to it on LinkedIn, tag me or tag the podcast, put bloody links bloody everywhere, write about it, reference it. I have, at time of writing, had 179 listeners this month. I'm on 969 all-time listeners because it always takes bloody ages to hit those fucking milestone numbers. And I've had 674 unique listeners. I have a few followers on Twitter and Instagram, largely from gaining followbacks and a smattering of followers on Facebook and LinkedIn, again, largely by invite. Connect with me. I don't want to be an influencer. I don't want to be a content marketer. And I don't really want this project to kill me. But I know it kind of will. This isn't a sexy project and it isn't easy to do at all, especially for me. I don't see how this project ever gets any broad appeal and I'm really not sure how good an idea niching around a city was actually. But I do think working hours could be something with a strong and dedicated following. I am doing something different to others and of course it isn't for everyone, but it is for thoughtful people, I hope. I imagine my audience is curious and considered people, people who are interested in people and their city and people who have patience, people who want to think about whether this is the best use of our time in the current moment. I want to reach people who don't normally have a moment to care about anything and hopefully give them a moment in the show that sparks something for them. So if you have any positive encouragement or support of any sort that you can throw my way, either by sharing the show or getting me guests mostly, then please do it now because I really need that support right now. Please give me a bump. I really need it. If you're listening to this, I assume you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're such a person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done your recording for working hours yet, then don't wait. Email me right now. Quick, get a pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Let's arrange some time for us to record your working hours interview. If you fancy being my guest, put guest in the subject and add a short bio and some suggestions of your availability into your message. If you want to be on working hours, we will need a two hour window in which to record. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews over Zoom for over a year, but I can record offline too. You can appear on working hours anonymously or you can promote yourself and your company or brand. Cleaner or owner, what is your experience? How do you feel about work? What do you like and not like? What do you do, Leeds? Be a part of local history. Have your voice heard. Share your wisdom. Give us the inside skinny. This is your show, Leeds. It's all about what you make of yourself. Do you know what you're doing? If you do, then come and tell me about it. Come on, even if you don't. Email me right now. Quick, get a pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com. If you're allowed to, that is. If you're not allowed to, then tell me why not. If you and your business aren't ashamed of what you do, then let's hear about it. What good are you doing the rest of us? Are you socially useful? Am I? Is this? Email me right now. Quick, get that pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Send me your feedback, questions, comments, and queries about working hours. What is happening, Leeds? Follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads to find out when episodes are being released. Or use the hashtag, hashtag Working Hours Pod Leads on either Instagram or Twitter to find me. I'm on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Simon hyphen Treen. 
you can go to my company page, which is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Western hyphen studios. If you want to make a podcast in Leeds, whether it's for a cause, a publicity campaign, a product promotion, or your own passion projects, then get in touch with Western Studios for support, advice, and guidance on anything podcasts. At Western Studios, you can work with a real lawyer who is actually in Leeds that you can actually work with on making podcast content. So don't wade through articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts. Western Studios can make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios can take your podcast's admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about it. I really want to hear from other failed screenwriters such as myself to look at making your material as audio content. So if you have an old script hanging around and again, you are leads based, then get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast, but don't know where to start? Hit me up at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast. First hour of consultation and pre-production is free. So what do you have to lose? Save the hassle, save the headache and make your podcast with a Leeds-based, in-real-life podcast producer, me, at Western Studios Leeds. Once again, please let Working Hours get big and strong by joining its Patreon. Support Working Hours by becoming a champion on Patreon for a pound a month. You can also chat to me about the show, and God, do I need to find someone to talk to about this. Go to patreon.com forward slash Working Hours pod right now and sign up, please. Please remember to like, share, follow, and subscribe to this show. Every little bit helps. Tell your grand, tell your housekeeper, tell your gardener, tell your parole officer, tell your boss, tell Leeds. And I'll see thee then. Working Hours is presented, edited, and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.